Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Couric, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Ocean House Author Series. And without further ado, I am thrilled to welcome Avery Carpenter Forey and Deborah Goodrich Royce to discuss social engagement. Avery Carpenter Forey is a writer and editor whose work has appeared in The Cut, GQ, and elsewhere. As managing editor at The Skim, she co wrote the number one New York Times bestseller, How to Skim Your Life. She holds an MFA in fiction from NYU and lives in Connecticut with her husband and daughter. Social Engagement was published in May of this year and is her first novel. Here's what Carola Lovering, the author of Tell Me Lies, has to say about social engagement. Unputdownable and razor sharp, social engagement is an addictive ride through the ultra-relatable highs and lows of a woman navigating millennial wedding culture and her own path to love and meaning in a screen-filled world. Forey's is a fresh new voice in fiction that effuses wit and heart in equal measure. I joyfully devoured her stunning debut. Deborah Goodrich-Royce's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's top 15 list, and was an indie next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's best of lists in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, Savoy Bookshop and Cafe, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. She serves on multiple governing and advisory boards and holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. Avery and Deborah will talk for a bit about the book, Social Engagement, and then we will open it up to the audience for questions where I'll walk around with the microphone. So just put your hand up if you have a question. And now, please join me in welcoming Avery Carpenter Forey and Deborah Goodrich Royce. Thank you, Lindsay, and thank you, Avery. So I met Avery here a year ago when Carola was talking about her book that was coming out and also about to have a baby. You had two major productions last summer, which was pretty incredible. And I don't know if any of you know, I think you must all know, social engagement begins at the Ocean House Hotel. So let's start. Why don't you just give us the elevator pitch for social engagement so everyone knows what it's Yes, so we're actually doing a live reenactment of the opening. No, I'm kidding. We're not, I'm not, I'm not going to make you do anything. <laughs> but social engagement is about a woman whose marriage implodes on the night of her wedding. So, you know, the champagne's been popped and the cake's been cut and all you know is that they're not going to stay married. And she is in the honeymoon suite with a pizza stained dress and she starts scrolling through her phone 
and relives the past year through the evidence on her phone. So that's pictures on her Instagram feed and her camera roll and sort of pieces together what went wrong through that. So, uh, which leads me to, really, it's a very interesting conceit that you use in the novel. You very much employ stylistically and through references the, the device of social media. So was social media an inspiration or how, how did that come about? Definitely. So the great part about writing a book centered on social media is that you can doom scroll and call it research. You can just sit on your phone at night scrolling Instagram and be like, you know, I'm researching. Leave me alone. Um, but no, social media was became a bigger part of the book as I was writing it because I just think it is such a rich psychological space for people of my generation, of all generations now, really, because it is a private act that you engage in when you're alone often, but the performance of it is very public, and I think that that sort of, the difference between being supposed to be engaging and be engendering community on social media when really it's very isolating, right? So there's kind of a split there and a cognitive dissonance between what it's meant for, which is connection, and what it ends up doing, which can often feel really isolating. Um, and I think that my character, Callie, really struggles with that, and it's something that I know a lot of people in my generation struggled with as well. So let's talk about generation. You are probably at the youngest generational end of people who have a bit of their lives, pre-social media, pre-cell phone, a mm -hmm. little bit. So you have, I mean, the, the writer's perspective is always that of an observer. Yes. You know, we are participants, but we're also observers. So the book really has that going for it. What about people, I mean, you have a daughter, a little, little yes. daughter. What happens next? I, I mean, I know you can't predict, but will, later generations even be able to recognize what you just said, that both, both the connectivity and the isolation of it. I know, I think it has become so woven into our social fabric that it will be hard to even parse out that distinction later on, I think you're right. Um, something else that that just brought up for me is the sort of exploration, which I parse in the book a little bit, but. I also wrote about this in an article connected to the book's release um, about social media and memory and how posting on social media has fundamentally changed how we remember things, which is really fascinating to me um, because it's, it's called the Google effect in you know, common parlance, but it is when you externalize a memory, you don't accurately sear it into your brain as well because you're sort of having your phone do the heavy lifting and you don't feel the need to record that memory as intensely and I found that when I had posted on social media about something I thought that I was remembering it more accurately because I would remember oh that was the wedding that I wore the red dress and that I had that funny caption with the red dress emoji and I would remember that but really I wasn't remembering being at the wedding and being in the first person seat I was remembering myself as almost a character that I had created and that is a bit disturbing but really fascinating narratively, I think. It is fascinating. I think in, in the past, raising children, uh, I would find that my kids would think they remembered an event if we had a particular photograph in the house. And yes. sometimes kids will say, oh no, I remember that, and they didn't really. So this is a slightly different thing that you're talking about. Uh, 
in, with, with still photographs that are in your house, you're imprinting on a certain level, and you're saying with just the volume of photographs on social media, you're actually detaching more. Completely, and I think that sometimes when you remember, I the exact same way my parents have pictures from when I was little, and sometimes I think that I remember that time that I dressed up as Big Bird for Halloween, but really I just remember the picture, mm -hmm. right? So the picture, your memory becomes subsumed by the external presentation of it. So one of my favorite parts of the book deals with female friendship, and it's the story of, of two young women who are peers, but there's also another component of Callie, the main character, and her relationship with the mother of her friend. I, I found that a, a really interesting dynamic. So would you talk to us about all of that? Definitely. So I think that um, I wanted to explore found families and the, the t kinds of people that stick to your ribs that you can't really forget, even if you don't have shared DNA, even if you didn't grow up in the same household. And Virginia and the Murphys really are that for Callie. So Callie grew up coming to Watch Hill every summer. Um, and she was friend. Can everyone hear me? OK, good. I just want to make sure. Because I've been to events like this, and sometimes you're like, I can't hear people properly. So I'm glad. OK. Um, so she, um, she is best friends with this family who they grew up on the beach together you know, in the same space, but there was a huge wealth disparity between them. And she didn't really start to realize that until she grew up. And I wanted to explore how Callie was always kind of an insider outsider in her own life and in this stratosphere of people, which I think a lot of the times the best narrators are insider outsiders, like you alluded to before. I mean, the classic is your Nick Carraway and Gatsby, someone who is observing a world and their social mores and is part of it, but also is able to look at it with a more critical eye. I think it was a Fitzgerald line, although I can never find it because I always want to use it and attribute it to him. And if anybody knows who really said it, he was among the summer people, but not of the summer people. Who said that? Does anybody that's know? perfect. Put it on the cover of it's, this book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's it. But well, you have that dynamic. Um, and, and talk about the two uh, girlfriends. And that's a, a very complicated two-way dynamic. Definitely. And I think female friendship is something that I am always interested in exploring. Um, it's these relationships that matter so much to you that are foundational to a woman's coming of age often fissure in your 20s and 30s when you're expected to find that one life partner and settle down. And in reality, you can have these sacred bonds with people that are outside the dictates of whether it's a heterosexual or not marriage or homosexual marriage. Like you can, those, the, your primary partner isn't necessarily the only person that has raised you and has been a part of your life. And I think um, just when you're in your 20s and 30s though, the bounds of that relationship stretch a lot of the time. Um, I, there's a line in the book, something to the effect of, not to quote myself, but the Venn diagram. <laughs> so it's like the Venn diagram of their friendship had started growing wider in its outer circles. It had started growing hip. So the things that united them growing up got smaller and smaller as the gap between them got wider and wider. And Instagram plays a huge role in that gap because it's really easy to look at your friends' lives if you're doing something different. When, you know, when you're in school, you're in lockstep with people, right? You go to high school and then college and then sometimes move to the same city for your first jobs. 
But then in your late 20s and 30s, people start making decisions that are more permanent and the dominoes scatter and you might not be in that same lockstep with your friend. And I think um, Kelly and Virginia need to not compare and just cheer each other on in order to find their way back to each other. And for Kelly, uh, in addition to the man she's married, uh, there is another relationship, an important relationship in her past. And uh, you refer to him as the one who got away. And, and talk about that dynamic and how that plays into the novel. Always love a toxic ex, right? <laughs> Always love a toxic ex in fiction. Um, so Ollie is further, the, her relationship with her toxic ex is further complicated by the fact that he is related to the Murphy family. So he's Virginia's cousin. So she grew up always having a crush on him, um, which I think is true of many people with their friends, family members. You're around these people in the house and you grow up and look up to these people. Um, so she always had a crush on him growing up and then they enter into this sort of secret relationship. And I wanted to explore the toxic ex also in the context of reflexive picture taking and social media posting because I think it's really hard to get away from past relationships now. I mean, our photo memories feature brings everything to the surface, right? Even if you want to forget about someone or something, your phone's reminding you. So you better start deleting pictures or just get on board for that walk down memory lane. Um, but yeah, so I think, um, I think I wanted to explore something that I think is fairly universal, which is the past rising up to meet the present through our phones, um, and how it's really easy to idealize someone and remember them in a way that puts them on a pedestal when you haven't had to really share a life with that person. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. So you and I have something in common in our latest books. We, they each feature a character with an eating disorder. And I, I don't know if you've gotten any flack on it. I got a little flack from one uh, Goodreads reader about that. Like, Only why? One? Just one. Um, so it's a... It's a Talk about your decision to include that as an aspect of this woman's life and development and where she is right now. Yeah, so Callie has struggled with bulimia and she has, that was something that came up organically as I was writing, but I then realized that it mapped thematically to a lot of other issues that she is grappling with because she has, this isn't a spoiler, but Callie has a sort of, um, she's an artist on the side. She never felt like she could pursue that professionally because of financial constraints, but she has this sort of side Instagram project where she sketches pictures she sees on her feed from weddings and she exposes their anatomies. So instead of a perfectly, you know, a Vera Wang dress, you see the liver and the heart underneath and all of the internal anatomy, which is a bit, a bit bizarre, but it, <laughs> came up and I thought that she, because Callie is really trying to strip people down and trying to see what's underneath their curated exteriors. And she's also trying to sort of figure herself out and turn herself inside out. And obviously 
It also maps to her need to look a certain way because of the images that she's fed on social media. Um, but something interesting that's, and I, I realize that similarity between our books, but another thing, both of these characters have really unique interests, right? The arcane murder statistics, mm -hmm. being like very into that type of research. Callie's body fascination. I had a writing teacher once who said, if you want to make a memorable character, make them really good at something or make them really passionate about something. And at the time, I sort of thought, oh, that sounds kind of trite or that doesn't sound super sticky. But as I was writing her, I was like, oh, this does make it far more interesting. Well, I think it's a really good point. And so in, in my latest book, it's, it's based on a real murder, the real murder of my mother's best friend. And uh, it's from the point of view of a woman who's uh, obsessively interested in that murder and in very arcane murder statistics in general. But I think th the truth of that is, I, I think we're always, we find other people interesting if they have interests. I mean, because that's, in the end, what you really talk about with other people. You're not just hopefully talking about the weather. <laughs> so I really did love that about that character because she, it, this is what she does. She draws, you know, the internal organs of, and it reminded me of like when you, you go to Paris and you go to Day Roll or a store like that where it's all the taxidermy and everything just, uh, it's a different way of looking at it. But why here though? Why Watchill? Why the Ocean House? You go to Little Compton. Yes. Why not there? Why not, you know, Newport? I didn't want people to call me out for basing characters on them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I really, I loved Watch Hill as a setting because I had been here once or twice growing up and then I went here when I was writing the book. and decided to originally in a really early draft, which as you know, you go through many, many drafts and a lot of big structural revision. So in a very early draft, Callie and Virginia were from the same town, but they had this financial disparity between them and she was sort of a satellite orbiting this very wealthy family. Um, and then I realized that I didn't want them to be from the same town. I wanted them to go to the same place in the summer and have it be because over the summer, and Watch Hill is a, you know, a privileged place, but I feel like when you're on the beach, you're sort of just stripped down to, you know, everyone's in the water, everyone's, and this is a, also a really casual, wonderful place, so you don't, you kind of forget about all of that when you're in this, like, pure natural beauty, and I wanted it to be something that when she was growing up, she didn't really think about the financial differences between them, and then as she got older and real life started encroaching, it was impossible to ignore that. Yeah. And there, there's a part in the novel where Callie lives at this family's apartment in New York as kind of a family member, kind of a guest. And you very beautifully illustrate um, sort of the underbelly of what's going on on both sides, what people are really thinking and expecting of each other. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think the, um, the apartment being the nucleus of a lot of the drama was really fun because it's a, you know, New York apartments are tight spaces and mm -hmm. it became kind of a place for things to boil over and secrets to be revealed, that's all I'll say. So now I wanna go on to process. So you are fairly newly married, very newly a mother. How the heck, how, do you, <laughs> how on earth? Um, I'm one of these people, you heard my bio, I have a bajillion things I've done, but the really long deep dive of writing novels came a bit later for me when I wasn't in that stage. So 
How do you do it, Avery? I mean, to be honest, I think you did it right because I'm now, I'm now sort of, you know, I actually haven't written a full book having a baby and I'm just starting to, I, I do have a big chunk of a second one that I've been working on but I have not finished it yet and it is hard to get into that. It's very diff a very different type of work I've found, right? It's a different, you sort of feel like you have to be underwater to be writing a book. Like you have to be in a different world mentally. You can't be, whereas I worked in media for years and I could be answering an email, responding to things while also having 10 other windows open and you know, scheduling an appointment and doing a lot of things at once, you can't do that when you're writing a book. Um, no, and to get super gender-based, which is not uh, a, a conversation many people have these days, let's just say historically, forget about now, but historically, I think women were very adept at multitasking. You could have the phone here, you could be stirring the pot, you knew who was doing the homework, you knew everything, you know, from, and you could work a job and do a million other things like that. For me, though, the, the writing is such a deep cone of silence, it required a different stage of life. Um, so I'm always amazed, Carola here, you, uh, you're all yeah. writing novels and, and having children. It, it's extraordinary to And me. it's having friends like Carol and Colleen who are here who are both moms is amazing because we can, you know, commiserate and talk about what it's like to be a mom and be a writer at the same time because it is hard. But I do think that it also gives you the freedom, if it is, if you're lucky enough to have it be your main job while you're raising kids, it gives you the freedom to sort of own your own schedule, right? Like it's not like I have to be sitting at a desk from nine to five and then check in. Like I can go into that cone of silence for three hours in the morning and then when my nanny, so I have a nanny from nine to two and then when she leaves then I'm with my daughter. But mm -hmm. before that, I try to work and write. And right now, work looks like answering a lot of emails about events and promotional things and scrolling on social media, which I can't count as research anymore, unfortunately. Um, but hopefully that will shift more towards very soon being back underwater with the new book. And do you find, and uh, I mean, this is a deep dive question, you don't have to answer. I find that there's always anxiety around the management of time, yes. always. Like I just took five months to be on a book tour and I'm going back to a book that I started last year and I'm basically at the point where I'm saying, this is crap. I don't know how to write. None of this works. Doesn't even tie together. What a stupid plot. I just, and so, and that leads to anxiety. Yes, very much so. And you know what you do when you're anxious? You scroll on social media. No, I keep saying that. But it's not, there aren't, I don't think I've found, I think that the best ways that I've dealt with that, like trying to manage that impulse are internet blockers. So like putting freedom on and just being like, which is freedom is just a desktop um, application that will block your internet so you can't go on websites, can't be distracted. Um, uh, but at the same time, that anxiety, that encroaching anxiety of, oh God, I just wrote, this is not good, this is crap, like how am I going to resurrect <laughs> this? Um, right. But the, a quote that I've said before but that's always helped me is, and I'm not a big plotter, do you outline everything? I forget. I'm sort of in between. The, the expression I like, I got from a radio host recently who said, not are you a plotter or, or a pantser, he said, do you chart your books with a map or a compass? So I don't have a full map, but I do have a compass. I like that. I would say yeah. I do that too. Yeah. yeah. 
I like that. And I, um, there's a quote by E.L. Doctorow that says, you can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way, which I think is true of writing and also other endeavors in life. It's nice to know, like, you might not know the end destination, but it's nice to just see, okay, I know a choice that the character is gonna make in this scene. Mm -hmm. And that's all you really need to know. Um, yeah, so, but I, I, that anxiety of feeling like a fraud is very much real. And oh, yeah. I think just something that we have to push <laughs> It around. never goes away, yeah. <laughs> ever. That's just something Oh gosh, we and you've written <laughs> multiple books, that's, oh god. No, I think that's kind of the human condition. So you are working on something now. Are you comfortable talking about it? Or? A little bit. Um, so I like to think of the next book as, it is the next book might make me a social leper because it's set in the town where I'm living right now and it's about women raising kids. So it's me, hi. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, it's very close to my life. But it's different because it's, I mean, the women are a little bit older than me that I'm focusing on. It's multi-POV. And it's a bit more plot-driven. There's a bit more of a suspense, thrillery element to it. Mm -hmm. So that's been fun. It's like a Big Little Lies kind of vibe, I'd say. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So let's talk about place, because I like to write real places. And I, I, I can go with all kinds of novels that aren't in a real place. I'm, I'm with fictitious places. But I find it helps my descriptive ability when I really, if I'm describing, you know, the body had fallen on this rug, and these flowers and stuff, it's, it's more vivid. Mm -hmm. And are you gonna stick with the real place yourself? For now, yes, mm -hmm. I think. I, I, I think that I used to, um, I think that I used to put certain genres up on a pedestal in my mind for being like more elevated. And I've talked to you about this before, maybe you've heard me talk about it before, but I was working on a totally different book that I thought was the book that would make people think I was smart. It wasn't the book that I wanted to read. And when I grab for books, I grab for books about, I, I look for books about real places and I look mm -hmm. for characters that I can relate to. So this is a book that I wanted to read. And knowing that, I then developed the confidence that other people would want to read it too. Mm -hmm. um, are you, where's, what's your next? Can you talk about your next one? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the one that's crap. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, I got, I, my books are not autobiographical, but I do use snippets from my life. I got an email last year from a guy, so you heard I used to be an actress, and it was a very provocative email, and the guy was like, hey, remember me? I was Toxic your- Toxic X? Well, wait, he said, I was your best boy on survival game, which is such a good sentence. Now. If you've been on a movie set, you know a best boy is the head electrician, but you might not necessarily know that. And then he said, do you remember that Thanksgiving dinner we had together? And I really didn't. Ooh, and Ooh this is spicy, Deborah. He said, <laughs> he said, you were the only actress that nobody visited for the holidays. Now it's getting a little weird because that's kind of a personal thing to know about me, which I don't personally remember. So it's, and then finally he, he went on to say, and do you remember when we saw each other at the Cannes Film Festival and you were holding a baby and waving at me and I wondered for a moment if the child was mine. <laughs> what? And then his last sentence he said, but I knew that wouldn't be possible. <laughs> so it stuck with me, this email, and I, I've been pondering mem memory 
and a woman with a flawed memory and a man who contacts her and has certain data points about her life and maybe he's telling the truth but maybe he's not so that's what I'm working on fascinating wow can we pre-order it now I'm like that sounds really good well right now it's crap (laughs) nothing is working nothing at all but so I think we're at a good point to open it up oh wait you have to talk Oh, you did talk. You did tell us about the women in the town. Greenwich? Yes. Of course. Riverside. It's called Waterview. Waterview. Riverside. Yes. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. Oh, yes, we have a giveaway. So... We're, we're going to go around with a microphone to take your questions, and then we're going to ask you questions, which will give you an opportunity to win a very cool social engagement sweatshirt. Woo! Merch, baby! <laughs> All right, we have one over there. A question for you. Hi. First of all, you guys are darling. I'm absolutely in love with being here. Um, Two questions. One is from start to finish, from idea to publication, when was that? And then my second question is, only being here two times when you were growing up, how did you have that vision in your mind of how you wanted to put Watch Hill in the book to start here? Yes, so publishing takes a long time, as anyone who's involved in it here, which are few of you know. I, from the start of the idea, so I started it in fall 2019 when I was going to a lot of weddings and then the world shut down in early 2020. So it then became my fictional escape um, to go to parties in my head when I couldn't go to them in real life. Um, So, and then the book got a lot darker because of that, I think, because I was in isolation and lockdown um, for, for better, I think. I think it's more interesting, but then I sold it in 2021 so I think it's about three years from starting writing it to when it got published. Sorry, I sold it in 2022, then it came out in 2023. Um, so it took a year from when, you, when I sold it to it coming out, which baffled people who weren't in publishing. Because you tell them, oh, I sold my book. They're like, when can I buy it? Like, can I read it next month? I want to bring it on a trip. And you're like, no, it's going to be a full year, which is actually kind of quick. It is. Year. It's yeah. very good. Yeah, and I think COVID... To, to that question, COVID was sort of a great catch-up. Yes. Because I would say my first two books were five overlapping years, not constantly on them and mm-hmm. stepping away from one to the other. And then it was more that timeline for my third and book next. because you just you had all that time. Yes. And, and then your, the second part of your question, um, I think it was a town that really stuck with me. I mean, it's, it's a really vivid place in my head. I... The carousel probably played a part in that. I loved the carousel when I was a little girl. And I knew, I felt like I knew Rhode Island and the type of people here, but I didn't, it didn't feel so close like Little Compton where I grew up going every summer. So I felt like I was able to kind of explore and play with a fictional universe more. And then of course, Taylor Swift moved here. (laughs) I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. So yes, that helped. Well, shall we do one of our questions? Yeah, let's so do what's one of the our first one. Um, okay, so the first one is what to keep on the Taylor Swift train? What Taylor Swift song 
is in the epigraph, is the epigraph of this book. Okay, yes, Maggie? Done, we got a sweatshirt. <laughs> Okay, now another question from you back up here to us. So my question for you is now that you're writing your second book, have you noticed a difference between way, the way you were writing before to way, how you're writing now and like a different timeline? Well, obviously you now have B.B. Campbell, so that's probably... Yeah, I think that I, I think that this book, I'm just trying to be... A, the, this book, my first book, Social Engagement, is very much a psychological interior explanation of one character's year and mindset, and it's very interior. Whereas with the next one, I kind of just want wanted more to happen from page one. Not that a lot happens in this book, but it's I would say it's much more of like a character, a deep character study. Whereas with the next one, I'm I think I'm just keeping an eye even more so on plot movement and. It might be maybe more commercial because of that. I don't quite know yet because I'm too early in the process. But I think also managing three characters versus one has been a fun kind of way to mix it up. Avery, do you do any kind of visual charting or? I do after I've finished a first draft. So once I finish the first draft, then I see, OK, I did with social engagement, I had a cork board um, that I put note cards on. So it was like, you know, the the inciting action, the rising action, climax, and then the resolution. So it kind of looked like a hill of sorts. And I had one way that the structure was really helpful with this, because every chapter is anchored in a social media post, like an Instagram picture or a camera roll picture. So every note card was one of those images, which kind of was a nice, easier way to track it, I think. I like that. Yeah. One of the things I do, which is very old-fashioned, I print out, because I do very nonlinear plots, and they often cover a different, you know, two sections of time. I print out, it's odd, you can get online month at a page calendar pages, and they're always correct for that year, that month, if Christmas was on a Wednesday and, and you're looking at the month of December. And I make just jot notes in certain places, and I actually referred to it today. It's, it's sort of a weird cheat sheet. You can do it on your computer, but the reason like to that. do it on paper is you can just go very quickly and see, let's say, you know, the collapse of the wedding was on February the 10th, and something, something can't happen after that. Mm. You can just have that little point on, on I bet your notes. editor loves you. Yes, right? yes. I was talking to Annabelle Monahan, <laughs> who's doing this now, because she said her editor would catch her and say, you know, you have six Fridays in that month. Yes, it just that, doesn't that work. That's happened to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a weird cheat sheet. I, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but just jot little points. I like that. It works with Thriller very well. Yeah, and then it helps it also feel real, because like, this is in a calendar. Because yeah. yes. you never want your reader to say, wow, did she screw up. <laughs> wow. Yes. That's a mistake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> OK, question. Who was your favorite character to write, and who was the hardest character to write? So Mimi was definitely my favorite character to write. That's the mom of the wealthy Murphy family that um, Callie is best friends with, their daughter, Virginia. She's just a really fun, she's sort of a composite of not my mom, but my mom and some of her friends, but she's 
turned up to a, a thousand. Like she's a different, she's them, but way more so. She's she's just a character and she's really fun and funny and she has so much joie de vivre and it was really fun to write someone who popped off the page like that. Um, and then the hardest character to write um, was probably Ollie well, uh, or Wit because they both were so sort of despicable in the first draft in a bad way and then you were like why does she even like these guys you know you need to make them multi-dimensional and make their softer sides come out to make it clear why Callie was with either of them good question yeah. do you want to ask another prize question out sure yeah um okay so this one is really probably for only people that have read the book this is a hard one actually so I'll mix it up if no one knows this one um where, what is the name of Callie's dad's manuscript that he's working on? Tick, 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 tick. Okay, okay, I have a better one. What is Mimi's, and this you don't even need to know it from the book, but you'll just be able to tell based on her personality. What is Mimi's zodiac sign? She's really, hmm? Who said Leo? Who said Leo? Leo. There you go. Sweatshirt yeah. <laughs> over there. Okay, and that, there's a question there in the back corner. Um, I was just curious, so you, like, we're talking about your experiences with social engagement. Um, I was wondering, like, what your thoughts were as far as the response from this generation and all the things that are happening within the social experience, um, whether you've, like, like, heard the responses or, like, experienced the responses of, like, how it affects the, this younger generation. Um, when it comes to social engagement. Yeah, so you mean like how the younger generation is affected by social media? Yep. Um, so you, like this, this, the book was like your experience primarily with the social engagement, right? Like, yeah, th this book. Yes, this yeah. book, yep. Yeah, so you're saying how does like even even younger generation? Yeah. yeah, yep. Yeah, so I mean Gen Z is, I don't pretend to understand what's going on, but <laughs> I do... <laughs> I do know that the way that they're engaging with social media is pretty different. Um, I'm hopeful for them in some ways because I think that they're much more, you know, socially engaged in terms of activism, which I think is fantastic. I do think that they just spend a lot more time on their phones than any other generation, so that's probably not great. But I think that um, one thing, and this is a very millennial book, so it's very much my generation, but Gen Z, I know, um, I think they're much more creative on social media than we are. Like one analogy I heard recently that I thought was interesting was Instagram is like a clothes hanger kind of. Like you're, it's the influencer economy really came to prominence on Instagram, right? Which is just like taking a beautiful picture with a pretty outfit posed. Whereas Gen Z doesn't want that. Like they want messier content. They want TikTok, which is kind of more chaotic and a little more in your face and. Um, it's creator forward, so it's people who are creating interesting three-dimensional content. So I, I think that that is a positive for them. Um, but yeah, I think that just spending so much time on our phones can't be great in general, right? Right, well. It's hard, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you think you are writing for a particular reader, or are you writing for yourself, right? Yes, I think I was. I think it's very much like the Instagram generation, people in their, like, 20s and 30s, but also older. Like I have a lot of readers who have said, oh, I'm not so on Instagram, but I know my kids are. And I 
it helped explain to me some of the anxieties that they're grappling with or they're dealing with. Um, because I think that you know, social media is a newer technology, but comparing yourself to other people is pretty timeless. So <laughs> it's not going away. One thing I'd like to say about the subject of writing a novel, for any of you who write here, you can be very mindful about when you set a novel if you don't want to have technology, and you actually have to bear that in mind. I mean, if there's certain things in a thriller, uh, somebody gets killed in this room, I mean, I'm sure there are cameras, there are all these things going on. So you really, one way of getting around that, if you don't want to have to tie up every single thread, is just, you know, set it 50 years ago. Yeah, um, very true. Because otherwise, you have to think of all those aspects, which is fun, too. You have a question there? Thank you very much for writing the book. It was a wonderful first foray for you. Bravo. Um, I found the book very interesting. At first, I thought, hmm, because I'm old. Um, <laughs> I said, well, this is interesting. And then I really got into it. And one of the things that really fascinated me, and you alluded to it, so, so I feel safe going there, was the uh, piece where she has this side, you know, gig online uh, about the inner people you know and and you alluded to the fact that it was a way of leveling people because you're not so much focused on their you know how beautiful they are or their clothes and things like that um but it has seemed a little macabre to me at times and i is this something that you thought of yourself as as a means to explain um how she might try to level people or was it something you maybe caught a glimpse of that someone had done um, that you wove into the book for a specific purpose. Yeah, that's very perceptive of you because that's exactly what I was trying to do is show Callie's trying to explore the fact that beneath all of our curated exteriors, we are all kind of the same. Um, you know, we're all a suitcase of organs, which sounds graphic. And yeah, but that's the way, that's what our bodies are. Um, and I think that it's something that people don't want to look at very often, but I think that Callie wanted to expose that and push buttons and play around with the medium of Instagram that is so focused on the external. Um, but I also have, I grew up with a sister who's a doctor and she, she became a doctor later, but she was one of those people who always knew exactly what she wanted to do, which good for them, that must be really nice. Um, but she you know, always wanted to be a doctor, so I grew up with her kind of fascination with the body. So it wasn't weird to me. I'm also one of those weirdos who likes like Dr. Pimple Popper and those kind of accounts. So I, those things don't make me squeamish. And in the book, it doesn't really get like, I don't think the book, if you, if you don't like looking at blood or something, I don't think the book will turn you off. It's not like I get super gory and graphic. It's just kind of, it's our bodies. It's her looking at our bodies, which is, shouldn't be that uncomfortable, but yes. But I know that it can be, which is interesting. I think we have time for one more question and then we'll throw one more question back at you. And I, I just wanna tell you, we have on Wednesday, Christy Woodson Harvey. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. You can still get tickets. And then the following Wednesday, you can come hear about my book. Uh, and I'll be talking to Robin Call, if you know Reading with Robin. And she'll be asking me questions. I'll be sitting there. So th those are the two upcoming ones. But we have a huge, robust schedule all summer long and really into December. So come back, please. And question over there. 
I hope this isn't a letdown of a last question. <laughs> um, I'm always really curious how authors choose the names of their characters. And in my head, I imagine it's like choosing the name of your baby. But maybe it's not. And I'd love to hear your process. It's very hard because I think inevitably you know someone that has the name or you know someone, friend of a friend, and then you think, oh God, they're going to think I based the character on them, even if the biographical details are different. Um, I came to find out after I was fully done with the book that someone who had some big fancy wedding was named Callie Holt. That's her married name. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I, I didn't know her. And yeah, that was unfortunate, but it just happens. Um, but the names, yeah, the names are really hard. I think I, it was a combination of going on, helped that I was also naming a baby at the same time as I was writing or coming up with baby names. So I was on baby name lists a lot. So I was looking at, oh, what are the most popular names of, you can Google po most popular name of, Callie was born in 1989. So 1989 names. Um, Claire was her name originally. And then I just liked that Callie was, I love the name Claire as well, but Callie sounded like a little more unusual. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard though, it's really fun. I've heard people say to just look through, like looking through the phone book, looking through lists of anything, something will spark. What do you, how do you do it? Oh, well, uh, sometimes my names have meaning. Uh, my, I have three names, Deborah Goodrich Royce, and Goodrich and Royce are vaguely automotive names, even though I'm not related to any of those families. So uh, my first book, Finding Mrs. Ford, which is set right here in Watch Hill, I named the protagonist Susan Bentley Ford, just because oh, wow. it amused me. And, and you wouldn't know that. I mean, you'd really have to be thinking on a different wavelength. But, um, and I also think uh, Susan is like an alter ego name for Deborah. I think they're generationally common names for women who are my age. You, you know, like, yeah. like you, you look up 1989, you look up 1958, 1960, uh, you get a feel. And so I think there's a lot of fun in names. You can play with them. I'm going to do like Ariel Woodchuck story next <laughs> for my main character. Yeah. I'm going to really just do an alter There ego. you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, uh, we have one more uh, sweatshirt to give away. So what's the question? Ooh, okay. Um, what is the name of Callie's fake Instagram in the book? The handle. Bridal body. Yes, you got it. <laughs> well, thank you, Avery. Thank you, everyone. Get in line. Get your book signed. Buy extra books. You know, there are always holidays coming up. So we'll see you in the back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Author Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author Deborah Goodrich-Royce. The WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>